Today, we are allowing the Lord to bind our consciences to many different things as we sing, um, as we worship Him. We are binding our conscience to just how holy He is. When we thank Him, we are binding our consciences to how good He has been to us. And when we praise Him, we are binding our consciences to how great He is. And when we receive communion, we are looking at and we are participating in the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And He's binding our consciences to what He has done for us on the cross, what He saved us from. And so today we get to discuss a subject that I believe is probably more, more, more um, important than the church has made it to be. It's all over the Bible, and it's regarding our conscience. Our conscience. Your clear conscience, which is your freedom from torment. Your clear conscience, your good conscience, your informed conscience, your trained conscience, is in fact your freedom from torment. And this is the third part of our mini-series in the mind of a believer. And today we're dealing with what the Bible teaches us in regards to our consciences. It has a tremendous amount to say about our conscience. But what I would like to do is answer a few questions. And the first is by starting off answering the question as to what is the conscience? What is your conscience? Well, the word conscience is a combination word. The word C-O-N and the word science. The word C-O-N or con means with, and the word science means knowledge. So you have a with knowledge, you have with knowledge or you have a conscience, but this is regarding yourself. You have knowledge about you, about what's going on with you. You have knowledge of that. This is why you cannot hide from your own consciousness because you have the knowledge of your inner motives and you have knowledge of your inner thoughts. So you cannot hide from your own conscience because your conscience is what, with all this necessary knowledge concerning your questionable motive in what you did, or your inner thoughts regarding something, or your hidden plans that you have, or your secret thoughts and desires. There is nothing about you that can be hidden from your conscience. You stand bare before your own conscience. Now, the Hebrew word for conscience is the word L-E-B, leb. And usually it's translated in the Old Testament as heart. So that means to guard your conscience because your conscience and your heart, therefore, are interchangeable. And uh, your conscience is a part of your heart. And therefore, to guard your conscience is, in fact, to guard your heart. You cannot guard your heart without, by violating your conscience. When you violate your conscience, you didn't guard your heart. In the same way, to sear your conscience is to, is to harden your heart against God. So the state of your conscience is, in fact, the state of your heart. Now, the heart is, of course, more than just your conscience because your conscience and your mind are connected and your, your mind, your desires your conscience, your heart, they all make one part of the true you. So the heart is more than just the conscience, but it's certainly not less. However, that means like in Exodus chapter 8 verse 15, when Moses wrote 
that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. He was saying that Pharaoh had steeled his conscience against God's will. He knew God's will. And he deliberately went and violated God's will. He steeled his conscience against God's call, God's command, and God's conviction. And here's the big deal. Did you know that the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart? Then God went and hardened his heart more. So God hardens the heart that hardens their conscience. When Scripture speaks of a tender heart in Chronicles 34, 27, it is referring to a sensitive conscience. In Psalm 7, verse 10, David speaks of the upright heart, which can be translated directly to the pure conscience. When David prayed in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. He was saying, God, please cleanse my conscience. <coughs> conscience is the ability to recognize right from wrong. It is what tells you, accuses you of wrong, and excuses you of innocence, or excuses you when you're innocent. So everybody, no matter how good or how evil, has a conscience, however. God made you with a conscience, and that is what separates you from the beasts. An animal does not have a conscience. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. Because they have a conscience, the law is written on their hearts, that's why their thoughts accuse them or excuse them. Conscience is a wonderful gift God gave every single human being. It is the first and foremost means by which God restrains evil in this world. We have multiple governments. We have self-government. Then we have the family, which is a government, the father being the head of that government. Then we have a civil government, which we have a president, we have leaders in our government, and then, of course, we have the church government. And when it comes to self-government, God restrains the individual from evil by giving them a conscience. When it comes to the family, God allows the head of that family to rule that family, and He gives them the rod. When it comes to the government, God allows the government to restrain evil by giving them the sword. And that's the instrument of death. Today they have guns, the police, and the military. And then when God calls together His body and He creates, He, 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 he of course gives them a government that rules them. He gives them the ability of excommunication, discipline, and excommunication. And so every single government that God established has a means by which they 
resist and push back against the evil of this world. That is how it's supposed to happen. But that's why the world wants to take the rod from the Father's hand. That's why the world wants to take away the police and now put counselors in there. Like, that's the way to do it. <laughs> it's why the world is pushing up against churches who actually have a well-ordered government in place in the congregation that actually rules, in, rules within that government in a biblical way. But today we're talking about how Satan is removing conscience from the individual. So he removes conscience from the individual, and that government collapses. He removes the guns from the civil government, and that government collapses, or he removes the sword and their authority. He removes the ability for a church to take stands within society and say, you may not support certain issues and be part of this church. And that's become a sin now to tell a person that they can't be part of a church because they participate in an LGBT pride parade or whatever it is. And so, we're going to talk about how Satan wants to remove conscience. Our conscience encourages us to do what we believe is right and it warns us to refrain from that which we believe is wrong. Now, when we violate our consciences, it condemns us. I'm sure you've had that feeling before. <laughs> you violate your conscience and now you have to make right what you did wrong. It triggers within you feelings of shame. It triggers within you regret. It triggers within you anxiety and disgrace and even fear and torment. And when we follow our conscience, our conscience it con commends us, it affirms us, it gives us peace. That's why oftentimes when people get into deep sin, their only thing is now suicide. Think about Judas. You see, the enemy is out to destroy the consciences of this generation. That is how he removes self-governance. And I'd like us to look at this for a moment because if we can recognize Satan's strategy on how he goes about crippling people's consciences, yours, mine, as a married couple, as parenting, we would be better off if we knew how he did it and how he went about it. We'll be better off as believers. We'll be better off as married partners or as parents if we can take heed and protect our consciences. Number two, now we talked about what a conscience is. It's part of your heart. It's a gift from God. Animals of the fields don't have this. It's what separates us. It's what holds us accountable. It accuses us when we are wrong. It excuses us when we are right. Number two, we want to answer the question, how does the enemy cripple man's conscience? Well, we live in a, we live in a culture that has elevated pride to the status of a virtue. Now it's a virtue to have pride. It's a good thing. People wear the badge. They're now proudful. They, they, they are proud of who they are. Society constantly encourages people to pursue and cultivate self-esteem, positive feelings, 
personal value. So just follow me for a moment. I'm going to show you how Satan goes about crippling young people's consciences in this whole generation. Because society constantly now encourages people to pursue and to cultivate self-esteem. Positive feelings. Personal value. Now, if you go and Google any of these, which I did, I was going to show you a bunch of quotes. There are millions of them. Quotes on self-esteem. Quotes on positive feelings. Quotes on, quotes on personal value. Uh, but it's, it's, there's just a whole ocean full of them. And people are encouraged to stay away from any negativity. Have you ever seen anybody wear one of those shirts that says um, something like, you know, stay positive? And um, what is that thing about, that thing about uh, no, um, no negative vibes, only positive vibes? <laughs> you know, like it. Well, people are encouraged to stay away from any negative people or negativity or things that make them feel like it's not positive. People are encouraged to distance themselves from everyone who might cause them to feel like they are not good. Stay away from those people who make you feel like you are not good, who makes you feel like you are not valuable, who makes you feel like you are not worthy. You're worthy to be loved. People demand that they are worthy to be loved. They, they say, stay away from anybody that makes you feel like you are not enough or makes you feel judged. You know those judgy police? <laughs> Hall monitors? You can't be judgy on Facebook. We will block you as they go about judging you for being judgy. <laughs> While at the same time, it has become a major offense when a person is told that they are a sinner. Think of it. If somebody now tells you you're a sinner in need of forgiveness, they go like, well, are you saying I'm not good? Are you saying that I'm not valuable? Are you saying that I do not have worth? Are you saying that I'm not good enough? How do you judge me? So it's now an offense to say anything that makes anybody feel, have any of these feelings because it goes against the unsaved person's self-esteem that believes that they are good, valuable, worthy, and enough. It goes against their inner feelings. It goes against their personal value. Now the contrast between uh, what Scripture says about fallen man and his nature, compared to what society believes about human nature, is absolutely night and day. And this chasm is growing wider and wider by the day. According to scriptures, man is a fallen sinner in need of a Savior. A Savior that can save him from all of these things that are true about him, that he isn't good enough compared to God, that he isn't valuable enough, that he isn't worthy, that he isn't enough, that he isn't without judgment. And so Scripture tells us that we need a Savior that can save us from this sinful, wicked state, that can save us from this guilt, this judgment, and this condemnation. But according to society, man is glorious. Everything is about man. That's why Armenianism is actually an evil, because from it flows humanism. Because if you look at Reformed theology, it's not about man, it's about God's glory. Evil exists. Evil exists 
so that God may be glorified. Without there being wickedness in the earth, how would you know that God was just? No, because there's wickedness, God's justice is displayed. Because there is sin, God's forgiveness is now recognized and experienced. God's mercy brings us to our knees only because there is sin. Can you see that? Wickedness and sin displays God's greatness. How would you know God was perfect if there was nothing, if you've never seen anything imperfect? You see, God's perfection is displayed. God is glorified by wickedness. Think about how God was glorified at the cross. But think about all the wickedness that happened in order for the cross to be there. God is glorified in all of it. That's the Reformed view as to why wickedness exists. So God may be glorified. The Armenian's bleeding heart goes, oh no, oh no. Wickedness exists because God won't violate the evil man's will. So because, because man's will is elevated to such a high place, man is free to do whatever he wants, and that's why there's so much evil. Because to this, on this one side of Reformed theology, people go like, so God, so God allows evil? Doesn't that make Him wicked? No, it's there to glorify Him. The other guy goes, well, God, God allows evil. He could have stopped it, but He didn't. But He's not wicked because of it. It's because He would never violate anybody's will. Let me ask you this question. If Johnny and Sammy gets into an argument, but Sammy and Johnny both are unsaved, and Sammy was about to get saved tomorrow. He was about to give his life to the Lord at, at tomorrow's revival tent. <laughs> but Johnny goes and shoots him because Johnny has a free will to practice evil, right? He goes and he shoots Sammy right before Sammy freely gives his life to the Lord. Guess what happened? Well, Sammy is no longer free, is he? <laughs> No, so his freedom was taken from him by somebody else's freedom, right? So how can you say, well, God is just standing on the side allowing people to practice evil because he won't violate their wills. Sammy's will was violated, right? I'm saying all of that to say this. According to Scripture, man has fallen. He needs a Savior. To save him from his sinful, wicked state. That glorifies God. It shows how merciful God is. It shows how forgiving God is. It shows how good God is. He needs a Savior to save him from his guilt. From judgment and condemnation, the consequences of his guilt. But according to society, man is glorious. Man is glorious. And any wickedness, watch this. In his moral character, any wicked deed he may have committed is because he is in fact the victim. You know how it goes. Well, this kid, he shot up a school because, man, he had really bad parents. Oh, this kid shot up a school because, you know what, somebody picked on him. Somebody called him names. And so he went and shot up a school. 
Well, these people, you know, they, they, they criminals because they just have, they don't have good enough education. We didn't provide for them the education they need. Well, this child, you know, he got really angry and bitter in life because he, has a he had a deprived childhood. He never had as much toys as his neighbors. You know, a society that was unaccepting of him caused him to feel rejected, unaccepted, and he went and shut up a school. He just wasn't loved enough. Everybody else is to blame, but not the one who actually committed the crime. Some LGBT student goes and commits suicide, and the media blames the church for it. Well, you didn't make him feel like he was a real person. <laughs> and today, self-proclaimed victims are not responsible for what they did. They are casualties of what has been done to them. This is what the world believes. Now, I'm, trying, I'm, coming, I'm going somewhere with this. I want to explain to you how Satan removes the conscience. And if you can cripple the conscience, there's no turning back. The, all the criminal has to do today is show how his criminal behavior was a result of his victimhood. And wham, bam, he escapes all responsibility for his own wrongdoing. In society's perspective, personal sin is no longer a disqualifying matter. It is no longer a punishable act. It is no longer something to be brought to justice. It is no longer something to repent from. There are recovering programs, and you can recover yourself from a fallen sin back to a fallen sinner, you know. Nobody is guilty for sin anymore except for the preacher who told people that they're sinful. He's guilty. Because he didn't make them feel good, valuable, worthy, or enough. He made them feel judged. No wonder the world has moved beyond a simple indifference to Christ to becoming openly hostile to Christ and the gospel, accusing the gospel, and Christ's exclusive claims of being the only mediator as bigoted. You see, the gospel of Jesus first disqualifies you completely. Did you know that? The gospel of Christ absolutely strips you of all qualifications to be right with God through the doctrine of total depravity. It's like you... Even the best works you have, the Bible says, stink to God. The best you have to offer makes him nauseous and makes him want to throw up. And this is the doctrine of total depravity. It's not that you're as bad as you possibly could be. No, you could be worse than what you already are. But every part of who you are has already been fallen and touched by sin. And it would take a miracle of God, like He did, blow into Adam and made Him come alive. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. It comes and goes. No one knows when it's coming or where it's going. And it, according to His will, goes and makes people alive. Regenerates people. That's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. So the gospel first disqualifies you completely with the doctrine of total depravity, then qualifies you, how? With what Christ did and not with what you did. Again, no value to you, no credit to you, all credit to Christ. This goes directly contrary against the grain of society. Thomas Watson said it this way, Till sin is bitter, 
Christ will never be sweet. And the reason people get sick of hearing about Jesus is because they love their sin. It's not that they have a problem intellectually with the history of scriptures. They don't have, a, they don't have an intellectual problem. They have a pride problem, right? They cannot find Christ to be sweet because sin is not bitter to them. They didn't sin. They good. They're valuable. They're worthy. They're enough. Why would they ever be judged? You see, the truth is, follow me in this, remove the reality of sin, which is what the world is doing, and you take away the possibility of repentance. This generation will never repent until they recognize what sin really is. Sin is missing the mark against a holy and perfect God. But because they don't know how perfectly holy God is, they think like, oh yeah, I'm kind of equal to Him. We're kind of both equally good. <laughs> you know. That's why they don't feel like they have sinned. But until they have a revelation of who God is, will they fall to their knees and say, I fall short of the glory of God. So remove the reality of sin and you take away the possibility of them repenting. Abolish the doctrine of human depravity and you will avoid the divine plan of salvation. No, no plan of salvation can be articulated until we know we need salvation. What do we need salvation from? Sin. If you erase the notion of, a per, of personal guilt and you eliminate, the need for a, you eliminate the need for a Savior. In other words, if you erase the notion that a person has personal guilt, you eliminate the need for that person to ever have a Savior. I don't need a Savior because I'm not guilty. Well, why, why don't you believe you're guilty? Because your conscience is dead. I don't feel like I'm guilty because you have no conscience. <laughs> we had this move, especially here in our church, where the moment I would use the word guilt, oh, people would, people would fall out of their chairs. We're not guilty. We're not guilty. Well, my question is, hmm. <laughs> How does that work in a marriage? Is a person never guilty of anything no matter what they do? I'm in Christ. I'm not guilty. <laughs> mm. This is why what you have is you have Christians that can live any way they do, vote any way they want. They're not guilty of nothing, man. Because they ain't not, they got no conscience. There's no guilt. I'm in Christ. There's no guilt. No, there's no condemnation in Christ. But would you, have, would you like to have spiritual psychopaths? Like a person who has no guilt. I've never, I never feel guilty for nothing, man. Number three, what are the di different diagnoses of the conscience? What does the Bible say about conscience? Well, it tells us that there's such a thing as a weak conscience in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 10. It says, For if anyone sees you have knowledge of eating in an idol's temple, 
Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So there's a weak conscience, and this is feeling guilty for things that aren't a scriptural violation necessarily. Feeling strong about cultural standards that are not biblical requirements. Feeling like one has sinned by not keeping with a tradition, even though it's nowhere to be found in Scripture. So a weak conscience is somebody who feels bad about everything. They drop their Bible and they're like, oh, they've never opened it. They just feel bad for dropping it, right? That's a weak conscience. They don't study it. They don't read it as long as they don't drop it. That's a weak conscience. The Bible talks about defiled conscience in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is now defiled. So in other words, they walk around with a guilty conscience all day long over things they ought not to feel guilty, but now they've lost their confidence before God because they keep on feeling like they're guilty before God. Their conscience has been defiled. This is a person who has gone against their conscience and violated it. Then the Bible talks about a wounded conscience in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against God. You see, in verse 12 in the New Living Translation, it says it this way, that same verse. It says, and when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong. When you encourage other believers to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning sinning against Christ. Don't allow people to violate their own consciences. So when you encourage a brother or sister to violate their conscience, you have wounded their conscience. And then we see the Bible talks about a seared conscience in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Okay, these are just, these are just false pastors, false teachers, teaching things other than the actual pure gospel from scriptures. Through their insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, When you see somebody, you know what? It's one thing to be a heretic. It's another thing to be a happy heretic. Have you noticed? (laughs) Some of these, you know, like when when I went through a major change within my own life and I realized, my goodness, I don't even really know the gospel. And and how how what what even is doctrine? And and what must I make with theology? How do I get it? And how do I know what is right and wrong? Uh, how do I interpret scriptures? That's why I'm big on hermeneutics. Because f- my whole life, I had none. Instead, I was trained on how to use scriptures to do what we need getting done, right? Well, we need increase the budget. Get up there. I'm like, all right, you know. <laughs> Grab a couple of scriptures that will support my cause. We need people to serve. All right, let me jump up there and let me use the verses I can to do what we need done. And then when, you know, when I started going through my own crisis, theological crisis, I couldn't do any of that with a smile on my face. I couldn't like, I'm standing there saying things and feeling absolutely fire falling from heaven. I go to bed and I feel like my conscience is in an oven. I can't sleep. I can't wake up. I can't function. I can't actually have a clear conversation without getting interrupted by all these accusing 
convictions and thoughts that are coming to me, right? So it's one thing to be that way, but it's another thing to be like, bless God. You've got the favor of God. Aren't we all happy here today? Come on, everybody. Say the Lord is good. Amen. You're going to get a parking spot at the mall today. Everything's going to go your way. You know, it's, it's one thing to be crushed by your heresy. It's another thing to be just a happy heretic. And that's, that's something to do with that person's conscience. And that's what he's addressing right here. He's addressing a seared conscience in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 and 2. It says, read it again. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and what? Teachings or doctrines of demons. Demons have doctrines. Not in hell, in the church. Demons have doctrines. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, they don't feel anything for their heresy. They feel nothing. They're okay with it. You show them a verse and they go like, yeah, well, that's what you believe. Well, that's how you interpret it. Well, how would you like to interpret what he just said? <laughs> right? So this is the person who has hardened his heart against what they see the Scriptures actually say. This is when a person has willfully pushed up against God's Word. Over time, their consciences have become seared. And then the Bible talks about the clear conscience. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 9, the clear conscience, he says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is the repentant individual. I hold on to what the Bible says, and I don't care that it doesn't make, sometimes I'm like, I don't get it, but I'm going to hold on to it. I remember the first time I told somebody about the fact, he says, why evil? Why didn't God slap that apple out of Eve's hand? I'm like, well, he ordains evil. Satan's God's devil. He's glorified by it. Oh, that's cruel. Don't talk to me about it. I, does, my mind, too, also does that. But I have a clear conscience because I hold onto the Scriptures as I see them, not as I want for them to, to be. Well, he's my God that I have made up, and he is as nice as I am, and I would never do that. Well, what would you do? This? Would you just stand back and allow evil to happen because you've glorified man's will beyond God's glory? And that's exactly the problem. No, everything exists for His glory. It is the believer's highest priority to keep and to guard purity of his regenerate conscience. You see, the Apostle Paul emphasized his commitment to a clear conscience before God. In Acts 23, verse 1, he says, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I do what I do because my conscience is clear by doing this. Not doing this, give me a guilty conscience. Take me to jail, I'm good. Acts 24, 16, he said, So I always, take, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. In other words, I work hard to have a clear conscience towards you and towards God. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 
1 Timothy 1 verse 5, Paul says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 2 Timothy 1 verse 3, I thank God whom I serve. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. So number four, we see that they lived with a clear conscience and they worked really hard at making sure that their consciences were clear. Number four, how is my conscience uh, informed? How is it formed and how is it informed? How is your conscience trained? I once read a book on conscience and there was a true story told in this book. The author told it himself and he said, um, let's say his name was Johnny. He once walked down the street with his friends in the neighborhood and they, and they arrived at an empty house at the end of the street. People had moved out and the house had been empty for over a year. And his friends, now this boy, Johnny, had a really good relationship with his father. And all his friends said to him, hey, uh, let's pick up rocks and see who can throw, who can break the most amount of windows in this massive empty home. So all the kids were picking up rocks. And they said, come on, Johnny. And Johnny went and he picked up a rock. And when he picked up a rock, all he could feel inside of him, and he was flooded with this idea, is what would dad think? if he found out that I did this. Now that was his conscience, his authority, and his knowledge of his authority's standards accusing him or approving of him. Excusing or accusing him. That is conscience. Having the awareness of your authority's accusation or affirmation. When your heart shudders at the idea of violating your authority's expectation, that is conscience. Why children's consciences are first formed by parents and then you hand them over to God to continue forming their conscience according to scriptures all the while. You see, the conscience reacts to the conviction of the mind. And what we fill our minds with forms our consciences. We need to know that we can and we should form our consciences according to God's word every day. And that is one of the reasons we gather here. That's why our service is designed the way it's designed. We want to bind our consciences to God through singing. We want to bind our consciences to God through reading of the Word. We want to bind our consciences to God through teaching of the Word we read. We want to bind our consciences by, by receiving communion and reminding ourselves as to what God has done for us. Because the, what we fill our minds with forms our consciences. And this is why the believer wants to saturate himself with scriptural truth every day, with biblical doctrine every day. Renewing your mind is not just exchanging a negative thought for a positive thought. That's, that's the world's way of renewing the mind. <laughs> no, the renewing the mind is understanding the doctrine of total depravity. <laughs> I've changed my mind <laughs> about who I am compared to who God is. Renewing the mind is the fact that, yep, unconditional election. I mean, how else did I get here? Is it anything that, was I, were, was, was I greater than the other one, than my friend in high school that did not choose Christ? Did I have more knowledge than him? Did I have greater wisdom than him? Do I have greater uh, moral ability than Why am I here serving Christ when a friend of mine from high school is not? Was it something I had? No. So every time we get into a doctrine, that doctrine is changing the way you view self and God, His will, and this life that you're in. 
So receiving doctrine is how we inform our consciences. MacArthur says, quote, The conscience functions like a skylight, not a light bulb. It lets light into the soul. It does not produce its own light. That's why you can go to Arab nations and people will have a very different conscience than you. You can go to another part of the world and you go like these people, uh, their consciences function different than yours because of what they've been exposed to. You see, your conscience doesn't produce light. Your conscience is a skylight. It allows light to come through. So when, when you, when you uh, expose yourself to God's thoughts on a daily basis, that light is coming through, and now your conscience functions according to the highest truth it has ever been exposed to. Now it's holding you accountable to what you just studied about God. See? What is the uninformed conscience like? Well, a good analogy would be like a judge who has never studied or read the laws of the land, standing up there attempting to judge the citizens of that land according to his own subjective emotions and feelings, not according to the laws of the land. That is what an uninformed conscience is like. A person coming up with his subjective opinions and feelings as to what is wrong and right and holding himself accountable to it. That's the atheist. So what is the well-informed conscience like then? Well, a well-informed conscience is persuaded by God's Word, not by personal feelings. I've oftentimes had very strong feelings about things I later on found was not in Scripture. Have you? But more so have I found <laughs> that there are things I've never had a feeling over when I realize, oh, I should have had a feeling over that, <laughs> right? Only getting into Scriptures, allowing Scriptures to inform you, causes your conscience to be formed around Scriptures and persuaded by God's Word, not your own feelings. Again, that's why the reason self-proclaiming believers in Jesus, they can vote for abortion, they can vote for same-sex marriage, for complete anti-biblical policies, And it is because for most part, number one, they are not actual believers. But secondly, there's this most immature baby Christian who still need to have their consciences informed by Scriptures instead of being informed by only their personal feelings about LGBT. These people are swayed by their feelings instead of by being convicted by the very Scriptures of God. So what is a well-informed conscience like? Number two, a well-developed well conscience is moved by Scripture, not by past experiences. For instance, when it comes to forgiving somebody, the well-developed conscience will not let you sleep soundly without first forgiving those who have ought against you, driving you to a place of living in forgiveness. Only a well-developed conscience does that. The undeveloped conscience holds grudges. The undeveloped conscience is fine with living with this long, this big black book in their pocket, keeping records, 
keeping records all day long. It's like, well, you said that. Yeah, remember 1972? You said that. Still can't forgive him for it. And then I go to bed and I sleep well. My conscience doesn't bother me, even though the Bible says love keeps no records of. Let me say that again. People sleep well with a little black book in their pocket, keeping records of everybody's wrong, even though the Bible says love keeps no records of. So why can they sleep well? Undeveloped conscience. They still need the scriptures to develop their conscience. What is the well-informed conscience like? Um, a divinely designed conscience is guided by doctrine, not by opinion. My opinion is, ah, oh, let me not go there. <laughs> I mean, think about the family. I just love how God established these governments, right? Personal government, family governance, church governance, civil governance. But when it comes to the family, I remember a king once came and visited America. And the first thing he said about the United States a day later, after he arrived here on a ship, he said, never have I seen parents disobedient to their children as in the United States. Never have I seen parents disobedient. <laughs> everybody in, America, in the United States, it is common for everybody to swap roles. The child runs the house because the husband's not allowed to be the head. Uh, and, so, and so it goes. All right. Finally. What is a well-informed conscience like? A well-educated conscience always is more rooted in Christ's triumphs of God's grace than focusing on all its past failures. What am I saying here? That the person <clears throat> who has a well-educated conscience, a scripturally trained conscience, is able to receive God's forgiveness for their own sin and forgive other people for the sins that they've sinned against them and just move on. Have you noticed like when a person's mind is not well ordered, they don't get past stuff. They, don't, they can't move on in life. Because up here, there's so much going on that is like a big spaghetti ball that needs to be untangled, right? <laughs> in, in Afrikaans, we have, we have a saying called, it's mace nester. It's like... You have, you have all these mice in your head nesting everywhere. And this person's got so many contrary thoughts and he's so not well-ordered in his thought life. His conscience is a mess because your conscience is connected to your mind. And so the person, the person who doesn't have a scripturally ordered conscience struggles to feel forgiven and has a really hard time forgiving. And so, boom, there they park, and that's where they live for the rest of their lives because what's going on up here. But the way to untangle that complicated spaghetti bowl in your brains and to, and to have a clear, well-ordered mind 
is to go to scriptures and say, okay, I'm going to throw my thoughts away. I need to know doctrine because when I'm exposed to all of this, it is going to inform my conscience and my conscience is going to accuse me or excuse me uh, whenever, excuse me when I'm wrong and excuse me when I'm right. And I'm going to live according to that. So the person who has a well-educated conscience is able to move on in life. They're able to receive God's pardon. They're able to give pardon and get over things, move on. Because life is not perfect and progress is never a straight line. God is able to draw straight, God is able to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Somebody said. So let's make a clear, well-informed, divinely designed conscience our goal. Individually, corporately. Amen? Let's, as a church, never look at a scripture and go, well, I just don't know about that. <laughs> I'm supposed to understand every single doctrine. No, you're not. If you did, you wouldn't have to trust God. Well, really? God is like, yep, trust Him. He's good. Oh, I thought that was bad. No, that's good because God said. So let's make a clear, well-informed, divinely designed conscience our goal individually and corporately as a church. And, and in this, I also, I also want to challenge you that there's only one way to do that is let's go to Scripture. The only sane thought you have is the one you found in Scriptures. Everything else is insane. Where else are you going to take your guilt? Where else are you going to go with your fears about the afterlife? Where else are you going to go? And that's why death glorifies God. Because it speaks about how sovereign He is. We, we, checkmate, everyone. <laughs> we can only go to the Lord. We can only go to His Scriptures, His Word, His truth, His will. And inform our minds. And so I want to encourage you. In, in, in January, we're going, to start, we're going to start with a um, reading through the Bible. And we're going to do it together as a congregation. And, and I'm very excited. Very excited. And trust me, you're able to do that. Because there's such a thing as audio Bible. You know that. <laughs> All right. Good. Let's close our eyes and bow. bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I thank you, Father God for being good to us. Thank you, Lord God, that you've given us your thoughts so that we can think your thoughts after you. You've given us what to believe in. You've given us a heart that can believe in what you've called us to. Thank you, Lord, for a clear conscience that we receive through baptism repentance, communion, faith in what you have done, that we can boldly, Father God, come to your throne room of grace, knowing, God, you embrace us, you welcome us, because we have been made right through the blood of Christ. Amen. Amen. Are you thankful to the Lord? Amen. God bless you. Thank you.